Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 53, Church of Christ, Sleep No More. This episode contains part two of my interview with Edward Fudge on the topic of the Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ. We'll skip any promo and any monologue, but let me catch you up before we move into the second half of the interview. In part one, which is in episode 52, we talked about how the Reformation sort of set the stage for the Restoration Movement that would come uh, after that. We talked about how about 100 years after the Reformation, the Puritans settled in New England, and still another 100 years after, in the First Great Awakening, the Separate Baptists came, and both those groups sort of further set the stage for the Restoration Movement with their idea of primitive Christianity. We talked about how still another hundred years after that was the second so-called Great Awakening, um, from which uh, the Stone and Campbell movements came, both of those people um, being very influenced by the uh, second, second Great Awakening and its Cambridge revival. We talked about how the two people that uh, the people that followed after these two leaders uh, merged into one group and then later divided again. And one of the branches out of that division is the uh, Churches of Christ that we're aware of today. Um, within those Churches of Christ, uh, Dr. Edward Fudge represents a um, more mainstream version of Churches of Christ, uh, and the and then but it, that's in contrast with a fringe group, a sectarian legalistic fringe group, as he's called it. And it's the differences between these two groups of Churches of Christ that we moved into, or that we continue to talk about uh, in the second part of the interview. So let's move right into that. Well, let's shift gears then um, from the Restoration Movement to these Churches of Christ specifically. Um, as I prepared these interview questions, I struggled with, to identify the best way to go through this. See, you see, on one hand, my familiarity with certain churches, my guest critique last time, leads me to want to make their problems and what I think are their unbiblical doctrines very clear because, to be perfectly honest, I want my listeners to avoid them in terms of you know congregating with them. But on the other hand, I appreciate your desire to distinguish what seem to be very respectable Churches of Christ like yours from what you have called this sectarian, legalistic, extreme fringe group within the movement. So what I'd like to do, if you're okay with this, is go through the practices and doctrines that I discussed with my guests one by one, asking you what the position held by the extreme churches is in contrast with the position that you and the churches that you're familiar with hold. Is that okay with you? Sure. Okay. Well, the first one I want to begin with is a peculiar hermeneutic that my guests described and which you've written about, one that seems to be summarized by this acronym CENI and which might properly be labeled patternism. Can you explain for us what this is and how the sectarian churches of, uh, of uh, Christ apply it? Well, what, what we're referring to as sectarian churches of Christ, uh, of course, do not use that label themselves, and, uh, and they don't have a sign that says that, and, uh, and there's no directory that has them all listed in one place. So we're talking about a certain mindset that appears here and there, uh, and one has to just to see it when it happens and recognize it. The CENI has, has two forms, uh, what I consider a legitimate form and what I consider an abused extreme form. The legitimate form that says that this is simply one way of, uh, of trying to understand what God wants us to do. Scripture tells us to be discerning what the will of God is, and, and we have seen that word many times in the New Testament, Duffy-Modzo is a Greek word, uh, testing and approving the will of God, discerning the will of God, and so forth. So it's a good thing we should try to do that. Uh, but this is simply an effort to do that, and the, the way this was approached was to say, how do we know what God is pleased with? And the answer was, after some study and consideration of Scripture, well, there are three basic ways we can know what God is happy about. First is a direct command. If he's told us to do something, obviously that pleases him when we do it. Uh, second is a, an approved example. If there's something in Scripture that a person does or a group of people do, and Jesus Christ or an apostle or some other prophet of God says to them this is good or a Scripture writer approves of that, then that's a good thing for us to do as well. 
And then the third one is the most troublesome one, uh, what they came to call necessary inference. And uh, by the way, this, these phrases uh, are found in common law, uh, speaking now as a lawyer, and they also are found in uh, in other sources outside the Bible. For sure, they're not found anywhere in the Bible listed just this way. The necessary inference really came in the best in the best form came to mean came to mean something like this. And if there's a deductive argument to be made, if, and I can't even think of a good example at the moment, but if there's a deductive argument to be made, which uh, logically is necessary as, as a conclusion from a syllogistic uh, premise or two premises, then, then that also is a way of telling what God is pleased with. Well, if somebody takes those as tools and just says, these are some things I'll be looking for as I try to discern God's will, I think that can be a useful tool sometimes, and it doesn't do any harm if that's all they do with it. The problem comes and came when, when people who like uh, more information take this as being a be-all and end-all and can go at it with the attitude, especially of saying, we've got to get this right or we're lost, or, or along with that, or you've got to get it right or you're out of our fellowship. Hmm. And, and people take it either of those ways and then try to apply it, they end up with a, a curious combination of beliefs that nobody else agrees with totally, because what they call necessary inference was not necessary for the other person. <laughs> and so, uh, in other words, I, I have perfect common sense, but nobody else in the world does. Right. <laughs> that, that's kind of the way we all tend to look at it when we get right down to it. Uh, and, and so the, the problems arose, yeah, when, when they misused it like that. And, and, and the problem fundamentally is not that they have this hermeneutical approach, although the Bible doesn't ever give it, and I think it can be discarded without any major loss, and to simply read the Bible and pray and ask God what he wants us to do, and, and, and read it and see it, and we don't have to use these terms. But if somebody does use these terms, they can be even useful for certain people in certain places and times if they don't misuse it. I see. So, would you say that the the mainstream churches of Christ, at least that you would be familiar with, would would say that this is a way, one way amongst perhaps several to um, to understand the Bible, whereas the sectarian fringe would say this is the way. I think there are three groups. I think the overwhelming majority of mainstream churches of Christ, the overwhelming majority, especially if you consider churches in cities as opposed to the countryside. And especially if you consider churches out of the deep south, uh, outside the deep south, uh, if you if you if you set off the deep south churches and, and, the, and the country churches first, and consider the ones that are left in the cities and in and outside the deep south, the overwhelming majority of churches and people in the churches across uh, mainstream probably don't even talk about any of those terms anymore. Many of them don't even know what they're talking about if somebody did mention them and have no clue that that was ever part of the vocabulary. That's true of most of the people, I really think, in those circumstances. In the Deep South, however, where the religious fervor has been maintained at a higher level, uh, and traditional thinking has been perpetuated with more fidelity, which is both good and bad, because there are good things in the tradition and bad things in the tradition. But in, in, in the Deep South and in the country churches where the same thing often holds, uh, you'll find two groups, you, and, and, and the groups are in the sense of two manifestations of opinion, not two, not two lists of groups, because they're not listed anywhere. But uh, you find some people who, who do, yes, what you just said, and use these things in an appropriate way. You find others who do not. And uh, so really there are three groups, some who misuse these things, some who use them properly, and, and the great, greater number who don't know anything about them. I see. And, and just one last question about this, this hermeneutic. The guest that I had on last time, he, he said that sometimes there's an, uh, an S, uh, that, that is at the end of this acronym, silence. And, and, and kind of the idea there, it seems to me, is that where scripture is silent, uh, about something, then it's against the will of God. I mean, for example, if, because, just as one example, we'll get to this in a moment. If the New Testament, um, is silent about instruments, therefore, is uh, commanded that we not use instruments. Do you think that this silence thing is is appropriate as well? The silence part of it is really, it really goes along with those other things. It's kind of a premise to the whole business. It's 
almost like S comes first and then C E and I after that. And so it's on the presumption that if scripture is silent, uh, it's, it's forbidding whatever it is silent about. And then with that presumption, we then say, how does scripture speak so that we may know it's approved as opposed to being silent and therefore forbidden? And then the answer to that question then becomes through the command example and necessary inference. I see. Well, let's talk about instruments then, because that's another one of the, what might be the most notable, one of the most notable distinctives of many churches of Christ, this a cappella worship, um, unaccompanied by musical instruments. And, you know, there are certainly many churches outside of the churches of Christ that, um, choose as a personal preference, maybe, or even maybe something a little stronger than personal preference, not to use musical instruments. But it seems to me that these, uh, extreme sectarian churches of Christ take it to a whole other level. What do they believe about instruments in worship and why? Well, if I may, let me say a word about your first comment the first, because that's an important background to this other, I believe, to put it in historical perspective. You're exactly right that there have been many groups, both who in the past have and in the present continue to practice a cappella unaccompanied music only in their worship meetings. Uh, the, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, I believe, is that way. The Eastern Orthodox Churches, and always have been. And, and, and their Greek readers who read, uh, read the Greek words that uh, translate sing and so forth in the New Testament and conclude that that's what the New Testament is requiring or speaking of. Uh, and among Presbyterians, Calvin was uh, was not in favor of instruments. Uh, Calvin's uh, descendants include the Covenanters, uh, uh, who are a group of Presbyterians in America. It's the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America. who are psalm-singing uh, a cappella, Christians, and they not only believe that the Bible excludes instruments by its silence, but they believe it excludes all, all modern hymns by its silence, and you can only sing the Psalms. Hmm. Uh, primitive Baptists uh, sing a cappella, certain Mennonites sing a cappella, and so forth. So the, the Church of Christ, uh, to the surprise of many others, and sometimes to their own chagrin, are not at all unique <laughs> in that practice. But uh, to get to the point of, of why, uh, some of these groups I've named have the same uh, same approach exactly the churches across that had that led them to that conclusion. So they're not even unique in their reasoning. Uh, but uh, the, the main the main line has let that slide, and uh, and again the more zealous ones, uh, both including the sectarian kind and the non-sectarian kind, who are simply more strict in their understanding. Uh, both those groups, uh, as we speak of groups, amorphous, uh, would say that the main line has slipped away from its moorings and has softened in its convictions and has moved or drifted away from the Bible. It is not where it should be. It's holding firm to the old past. But the main line believes that it's simply moving away from tradition and emphasizing the things that the Bible emphasizes and putting the stress where the New Testament puts it. I see. So... If if the mainstream churches are a little bit more um, uh, comfortable, I guess, with instruments, even if many of them wouldn't choose to use them, uh, why is that? I mean, if 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 in fact the New Testament is silent about instruments, which I'm not 100% convinced of, but if that's if that if it is silent about them, why are mainstream churches more comfortable if if certain churches want to use instruments? Well, uh, first of all, as I mentioned while ago, the mainstream churches are not at all sure that the New Testament is silent about it either. Or that silence makes any difference. Right. Uh, so you know, that that's already changed first. But but and I, I think the main this is I think this is unquestionably the main uh, driving force uh, not only for this practice and not only among churches of Christ but for many things that are happening across the board among all kinds of Christian people. And that is, it's being driven by a, a, a contemporary uh, emphasis on the secret churches. Uh, by, by an emphasis on uh, uh, evangelism through the, the worship service, and by an emphasis on uh, on the praise and worship, uh, which is not a bad emphasis at all to have. Uh, but but the thought, the thought of many churches of Christ who have adopted instruments, and, and that's happening in the big cities and outside the deep south more and more frequently. In fact, the two or three largest churches of Christ in America. Uh, maybe the world uh, have adopted instruments in the last few years, and at least have a service that's instrumental and another service that's a cappella. I preached uh, two Sundays ago in Florida, Orlando, at a church called Metro Church of Christ, 
which had two services. The first was acapella, the second had instrumental accompaniment. Uh, so this is happening, and, and the ironic thing is that there's one particular publishing company that maintains a directory of Churches of Christ for the sake of travelers and so on who wish to find one in another town has decided that uh, when the church adopts an instrument of music, they take them out of the directory and uh, <laughs> make, it a, make it a definitional point of being a church of Christ. The, the irony here is that uh, the Church of Christ leadership and, and, and uh, newspapers and, and people are frequently lamenting the fact that uh, they were shrinking in size and at the same time <laughs> <laughs> taken out of the directory. Right. They were growing the biggest. This is a little strange. Yeah, that's funny. Well, here another distinctive of many churches of Christ seems to be the frequency with which the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Again, I don't think this is unique to the churches of Christ, but what what does the extreme fringe within the churches of Christ believe about when and how often we should celebrate communion, and how is that maybe a little different in the mainstream that you're representing today? Well, by now you know that I can't answer a straight question with a straight answer. <laughs> in, in, in law, if I were taking your deposition and you were hedging and jumping about like I'm doing, every time you did that, I would say I object to the non-responsiveness of the answer. <laughs> and the court reporter would have to enter your objections for the judge to consider. But since we're not in law court, <laughs> maybe I can get by with it a little longer. Sure. Uh, you, you say the frequency of communion. Of course, you, you know, and, uh, and you're more uh, well-read listeners know, but some good Christians may not know that, that an overwhelming majority, by far, the way overwhelming majority, of all professing Christians today have communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist uh, every Sunday. And uh, that would include the Catholic Church, even if they don't include that among the ones they consider faithful. The Episcopal and Anglican Church, which in many parts of the world is very faithful to the Lord, and uh, in many of the ones in America are as well. Uh, it includes uh, some Reformed Baptists. It includes... Christian churches, disciples of Christ, and, and maybe other groups. And there's a movement, in fact, just among Christians as a whole, toward a more frequent observance of Lord's Supper, even those who don't go there every Sunday, of, of going from maybe annually to quarterly or quarterly to monthly or monthly to more frequently. And another practice that's not uncommon is to find Baptist churches or others who, uh, who offer the Lord's Supper in a side room for those who wish to take it every Sunday even if they don't publicly serve it to the whole congregation every Sunday. So that that is something that we're not that unique about at all. Uh, the difference, however, is, is in attitude and why it's done. Uh, for, for those who are what I call uh, gospel-centered uh, people in the Church of Christ, we take the, the communion every Sunday because uh, it's, it's uh, something that blesses us. Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, and the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day are appropriately set together, uh, we, we take it every Sunday because it's a good thing to do, and has been done since the early years of the Christian Church. Uh, so, so there are good reasons for doing it, and you can find lots of people in all kinds of denominations who will say that. Uh, the, the sectarian approach to it is where it goes wrong, and that is to say that here is a strict pattern for the church. It includes all the do's and don'ts, and if you break a single one of them, you're straight for hell. And the only way to be saved is do all this right all the time. Mm. That approach is where it gets messed up. And for those people, they, they must go to great lengths to prove to their own satisfaction that the New Testament not only allows or even encourages the weekly communion, but in fact requires it. And then beyond that, not only requires weekly communion, but limits it to Sunday and says that it's wrong to take it any other day of the week. Yeah, it's 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 funny you mention that because I don't seem to recall Jesus saying, um, you know, on every Sunday, on every first day of the week, do this in remembrance of me. That's not what he said, is it? Well, what what you have to understand is <laughs> you have to understand the, the, the proper interpretation of Scripture. What Jesus actually said is, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And uh, and, and the Greek word that's translated as often as is a specific Greek word. It means as often as indefinitely, whenever that might be. Mm. And you have to understand when Jesus said that, what he really meant was you have to do it every Sunday. And all other day. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. I'm being facetious there, of course, but, but the, the folks who, who argue that way will go to great extremes to argue that Acts 20 and 7 says that the disciples broke bread on the first day of the week. 
first of all, is talking about the Lord's Supper, not a common meal. Secondly, that they did it on a Sunday, not a Saturday night or Monday morning. Right. And third, that they had to do it, which it doesn't say at all. I mean, it's, it's an impossible position to scripturally uh, hold. Yeah, I agree. Well, one thing that my guest and I discussed was the position of these extreme churches of Christ when it comes to creeds. And, and we talked about this briefly earlier. Um, you know, Campbell was, if I remember correctly what you said, he was okay with creeds so long as they were used properly and not abused. Now, it seemed to us that although we would share the view that Scripture is the only authoritative rule of faith, nevertheless, it seems to me that the sectarian branch of the movement takes this to an extreme that at least I find problematic. What is their view of church history and the creeds, and do you share that? at least my concern? Oh. I, I, I share your concern to this extent that, it, that, that sometimes churches of Christ have been so uh, credo uh, paranoid that uh, that they did not even consider, would not even consider using the Apostles' Creed, for example, or even more detailed than Nicene Creed, both of which I consider good statements of Christian faith, summary of, of ancient Christian doctrine, and occasionally we use the uh, Apostles' Creed in our congregation, although not as often as I would like. Uh, you're right that Campbell said it was the abuse that he objected to, not the use. He had no problem with people saying, this is a summary of my understanding, even if it was the Westminster or some other more particular creed than the Apostles in my scene. But what he did object to was saying to people who were about to be ordained in the Christian ministry, you must uh, you must state that you conform to this creed entirely before you can be a gospel minister. Mm. And that, that 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 specific matter was important in the history of Walter of uh, of Barton W. Stone uh, when he was being ordained into the Presbyterian uh, as a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he was asked the question: Do you agree or do you agree with everything in the Westminster Confession? And his answer was, I do, so far as I find it taught in the Word of God, <laughs> which, which should be a good answer in my opinion, but <laughs> it didn't think it was. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, they, they can be abused if, if people use creeds. Uh, if people use creeds to uh, to either define other Christians and decide who is a Christian or not, or if they use creeds to uh, say who they can have fellowship with, I think those are abuses and misuses. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the, the, the there's a uh, somebody that I respect, and, and he's a Calvinist, so I'm not sure that, uh, you know, everybody would. But his, it's Dr. James White from Alpha and Omega Ministries. And one of the things that he's often said is that those who are most blind, blind to their traditions uh, are the ones most um, enslaved to them. And it really seems to me as though these churches of Christ we're talking about are so... Uh, as you said, credo paranoia or credo paranoid, that they are blind to the fact that they've got uh, traditions that they have uh, that they follow. Do you find that to be the case as well? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's it's uh, it's clearly understood by those who clearly understand that <laughs> uh, that people who say that uh, frequently have their own unwritten creeds and what they object to are written creeds. But uh, but they're very certain. So you don't have to talk long to this. this to discover that there are other areas that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture which you must agree with these folks on or else they do not receive you as a Christian. Here's an example of misuse of creeds. However, this is a quotation from a from a particular Reformed theologian who's well known. You see, I've had but one object in my professional career and as a writer, and that is to state and to vindicate the doctrines of the Reformed Church. I have never advocated a new idea and have never never aimed to improve on the doctrines of our fathers, having become satisfied with the system of doctrines taught in the uh, uh, confessions and so forth of the Reformed churches as taught in the Bible, I have endeavored to sustain it, and I'm willing to believe even when I cannot understand. So did you say that you find that to be a use or an abuse of, of creeds? Not to my mind, that's a prime example of the abuse. In what way? Because I'm not sure I follow. For a person to say that my whole my whole ministerial career has been to uphold and oh the doctrines oh, yeah. of any any particular creed uh, to to the point that I follow it even if I don't understand it. Yeah, my, that's that's a quote out of out of a new book I have that we'll talk about later. And I go on to say I'm just remembering here, but I go on to say after that, what is this? Isn't that the same attitude that spurred the Reformation when bossed by? 
particular medieval Roman Catholics. And then I say, whenever such a an attitude is expressed, uh, we all, all claims of, of allegiance to a high view of Scripture come into immediate under immediate suspicion, and, and become no more, become no more uh, meaningful than a game of charades at a birthday party of twelve year olds. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. Well, so you, you've called the churches that my guests and I critique sectarian, um, and maybe we already talked about this a little bit, uh, given Campbell's um, uh, desire to be only Christian and not consider himself the only Christians. And I definitely, I also find these churches of Christ we're critiquing to be sectarian. But c- but can you elaborate on that? I mean, how, in what way is the mainstream not uh, characterized as sectarian? This is still this is still a work in progress, as I, as I understand it to be a work of God in progress. Uh, so it's not like suddenly all this is true everywhere you look. But I would encourage your listeners to rather rather than going out uh, with a pre predetermined idea of what they're looking for, it's either all or nothing. Uh, if they do that, they're no better off than these folks we're talking about. Uh, but I would encourage them to go out and look instead and say. Where, where, where do I find a place where God is working and encourage that in, his, in what is good and, and be a part of helping it be better instead of just going out to condemn? Mm-hmm. Uh, but say, you're, I'm sorry, I got off track there. What's your question again? Well, just explain what it is when you say that this extreme we're talking about is sectarian and, and yeah. in, what, in what ways is the mainstream not sectarian? Okay, the, the two words that I, I've used most often over the last 50 years talking about this, is uh, sectarian and legalistic. Those are the two main words. But by these terms, I, I mean the following. Sectarian, by sectarian, I mean that uh, one does not consider others to be in, in their fellowship, and they cannot have any uh, fellowship with them as a Christian brother or sister unless they hold to certain views that they hold to beyond the, beyond what Scripture clearly holds out of trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and a desire to follow him. Uh, by legalistic, I mean that, that the person believes that their their own performance, their own living up to a standard, whatever it's, however it's defined, is the basis of their being set right with God in the day of judgment, rather than their trusting completely in the perfect doing and dying of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, so those are what I mean by the words. Uh, how, how is this seen in, in the mainline churches? It's seen in some of the following ways. First of all, the absence, uh, silence, if you please, of, uh, of the old teaching to the contrary. It used to be that if you went in churches of Christ, you would almost expect to hear a sermon against what they call the denominations or a sermon against some peculiar doctrine like a practice like having instrumental music or premillennialism or something. And, and it, was all, it, was, it was always in some churches... Uh, uh, a diatribe against somebody else as one one old Church of Christ brother who was highly esteemed and, uh, and a prominent figure in our institutions used to say if the denominations go in the door we have to come in the window <laughs> uh, but but that's changing I, I, I think it's not unimportant to say what you don't see is one of the biggest answers to your question that's not what you hear most of the time in many churches of Christ you, you hear Jesus preach you hear the gospel talk you, you hear an emphasis on the serving God in the world. You hear, you see people busy trying to relieve the needs of others in the name of Jesus. What John Scott referred to as the Great Commission and the Great Commandment combined. And, uh, and, and the positive things that are happening is one of the greatest manifestations of the demise of this uh, sectarianism. I see. And, and you mentioned legalism, and that was the next question I was going to ask. Uh, I, I agree with you. It seems like some of the Church of Christ people that I've known do seem to have an emphasis on their performance um, rather than on the work of Christ. Um, if that's not the case in the mainstream churches, what, why not? Why, what do they view? How do they view performance and works? How do the mainstream view it? Yeah. Yes, the, the mainstream understand. They may not say things exactly the way you would say them, or even sometimes the way I would say them, but this is what they really mean, I believe, most of the time. They, 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 may, they would say, would agree, I think they would agree with this kind of statement, that we are saved ultimately because of what Jesus Christ did for us, and nothing we do or fail to do is the ultimate basis of our salvation. That uh, because Jesus did this for us, because God loved us and His grace was shown in this way, uh, we respond to him uh, by faith and trust and obedience, 
Amen. Like the old song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And as Corey Tinberg once said, uh, I actually was having a White House Smith, I think, perfect obedience is perfect joy for the one for one in whom we have perfect trust. Uh, if we do trust in Jesus and we're thankful for what he's done for us, then we will try to obey him and we find joy and fulfillment in serving him and serving others in his name. Yeah, I, I do agree. And, you know, I would go a little bit further than perhaps what I might have heard. And I, I would concur with, I don't remember if it was Calvin or Luther, who said that salvation is by faith alone, but salvation, but, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, a saving faith by necessity results in, in works. Do you think that that's true? Well, uh, to, to quote one with even more authority than Calvin, <laughs> we could say that neither circumcision avails anything or uncircumcision, but faith which works through love. Yeah. Now, but but with the churches of Christ, the sectarian ones that we're talking about, um, do they take this further? Do, I mean, in, in what sense would you describe them as legalism, legalist? Well, ultimately, you, you bump into some folks who, uh, again, are not in a directory anywhere, and, and one must be careful in going around blasting people with labels, but, uh, but they're definitely out there, and I've encountered them, and they've encountered me sometimes with bricks in their hand instead of uh which from their point of view I guess I understand just like Calvin uh drowned Anabaptist sometimes or whatever. But uh, uh from their from their point of view you they would they would they, they, they would not say it in terms that we're used to talking about, but this is I think a fair statement of their mindset. They believe that God graciously sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world, the whole world, that everybody who will who will receive his gift uh, can enjoy that gift, but to receive that gift we must do certain things, and to enjoy that gift we must do even more things, and that, uh, that a person who, who uh, does not uh, meet the conditions, it's ultimately a conditional gift, it's a free gift, we don't deserve it, but we've got to do everything right, believe everything right in order to to receive it. That's a condition of receiving it. And if we don't receive it, we don't we lose out on it and finally are lost. Mm. So they, they, they're really inconsistent. They think they believe in grace, but maybe in their heart they really, really do. If you get right down to it on their deathbed, many of these people will say things like, I sure hope I've done enough. Yeah. And, and they indicate a lack of assurance. On the other hand, uh, there are others who, who have been living in that kind of environment, who will say on their deathbed, well, I'm trusting only in Jesus on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all over the ground is shifting sand. And, uh, and so you know, only God knows those who are his, and it's a part of the rest of us to uh, let those who name the name of Christ depart from the nickname. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the friend of ours that I interviewed, he, he described how his wife, before she came out of that movement, um, was constantly worried about whether she was saved or not, how, you know, whether she had met those conditions and stuff. So I definitely find that what you're saying is, is probably true. But what I want to do is read something that you've written just to close out this issue of legalism, because I think that this really puts it well, the difference between the mainstream and the, and the um, sectarian branch. You said in a grace mail that in some churches of Christ, and here's your quote, Christ is now pre- preached as preeminent rather than the church, grace rather than law, scripture instead of human opinions and deductions, and Jesus' blood and righteousness as the grounds of salvation instead of our own faulty obedience, unquote. I just wanted to read that. I think you, I think you put it very well, and, and I would totally agree. Now, yeah. Now, as, as problematic as some of these issues we've talked about are, aside from legalism anyway, those aren't the ones that are, are the most problematic for me, the ones that cause me the most concern. There are a few that I want to talk about, <coughs> excuse me, because if I'm being honest with you, and if we disagree on this point, I'll, I'll, I'll totally understand, but based on my understanding of the things that we're about to talk about, I'm not certain I'm even comfortable calling these sectarian uh, churches of Christ genuinely Christian, and I want to talk about the reasons why. Um, one of them is their view of original sin and human nature. Um, as much as Calvinists like me disagree with Arminians on various aspects of soteriology, the one point on which Calvinists and Arminians have historically agreed is the total depravity of man. But the churches of Christ, with which I'm familiar anyway, the sectarian ones, they won't even go that far, it seems to me. Am I right? Uh, yes, you're probably right. 
so if if they don't think that we're so tell me what you think about the um the what you would how you would define total depravity as as perhaps not a Calvinist, but and and tell me how the the sectarian churches of Christ um would disagree with that. Well, let me go. Let me think just a second. I, I like I like to, this is one of the traditional restoration ideals that I find good and useful and, and still practiced. And that is to try to say things in biblical words when possible, because we know the words at least are right, whether <laughs> we understand them fully or not. Uh, so when I talk about what, what theologians call original sin, since the Bible doesn't use the word original sin, I don't feel a necessity to always say that. But I do when I'm teaching, for example, in the traditional Church of Christ, which is not very often, or in the main line, which is more often, if I'm coming upon the subject, I would approach it something like this. I would say, I would say, whatever people, theologians and churches and creeds and denominations have said about this on either side, we, we know we're safe if we go with what the Bible says. So let's turn to Romans 5 and look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And I simply point out that Paul and I make a list on the board or PowerPoint or whatever of the, of the specific things that Paul says happen because of the sin of one man. And it's got quite a fearsome list there when you get through. Uh, all died, uh, it's condemned, they're under sin, and so on, so on, so on. Then, then I make the observation that for Paul, in, in that context, his audience, his original audience, is not surprised to hear any of that because the Jews have a similar idea as well. But the thing that blows them away is his statement that he repeats over and over throughout that mix of much more on the other side. Jesus has brought in life and justification to all and all those things. So uh, so it, it, to me it's very clear in Scripture, even if that's the only passage we had, that because of one man's sin, if Jesus had not come, if Jesus had not come, because of Adam's sin, the whole human race would be eternally lost and uh, perish finally. But uh, because Jesus did come, that's not the case. And because Jesus did come, we still are born into a fallen world with a fallen nature. We still uh, require the work of God through the Holy Spirit and the gospel to regenerate our hearts and to give us faith and repentance. And we still are aided by God. In fact, God is at work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. Okay. Well, so the reason I ask this is because there's a, a friend of mine who has pressed me a lot. He, he's in a church, one of these sectarian churches of Christ. And um, the website of the ch- a church that he used to attend, he's moved, and so he's not a part of that church anymore. But in, the, in, in their statement of faith, which, by the way, I find kind of ironic since they reject creeds, their statement of faith read, we do not believe that babies are born in sin. Um, now, the anonymous guest that I had on last time, called sectarian churches of Christ like this out and out Pelagians. Um, for those of my listeners who might not be aware, Pelagianism <laughs> is sort of the view that uh, man is born with a clean slate. There, there's no real fallen nature. Do you think, would you, would you fall, um, would you agree with my previous guest in saying that many of these sectarian churches of Christ are in fact out and out Pelagians? I think it, uh, I think it's, uh, it's hard not to arrive at that conclusion. Yeah. Okay, good. I wanted to make sure that uh, that that he was right about that. Um, so again, again, the only thing I would say, I, I just uh, let me preface this with one other comment. When when I when I preach or teach in an Episcopal church, for example, I like to point out to those people that the way Pentecostals worship is just as good as their way. And when I preach in a Pentecostal church, I like to do just the opposite. And so, in speaking with you as a theologian who is uh, very up on all the terminology and the history and everything. I like to say to, to those who listen, uh, just be careful about easily dismissing people with labels. And, uh, and a, a label is not a, really an answer to an argument. Uh, if it fits, it can be helpful in conversation. But I, I, I've been through enough as a victim of it, as well as sometimes a perpetrator, <laughs> to know that, uh, that we got to be careful going around slinging labels. <laughs> Yes, I, I would agree with you. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems to me as though uh, the chur- historically the church has disagreed on a lot of things. I mean, that's very obvious. But one of the things that as far back as Augustine, you know, goes, the churches seem to rail against Pelagianism. I mean, uh, the- I, I agree with you. And when we get right down to it, you and I believe the same thing on that point. Of, 
I'm, I'm just giving war to caution. To Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to one of these churches of Christ and call them all Pelagians and therefore heretics. Although I, it is one of my biggest problems with with their doctrines. And it sounds to me, you know, in in one of your emails, you, one of these differences that you said that you wanted to draw between the mainstream and between these sectarians was, was a difference between Pelagianism and Arminianism. So is, is that where this where the biggest difference is? The, the mainstream would be a, a classical Arminians uh, and would agree with total depravity or original sin, however you want to put it? I would say that the mainstream uh, is unaware of those fine distinctions and, and, and what they really what they say probably sounds more sounds less like Arminian uh, than, than the other. But what they really believe when you get down to it, if you talk to them about their personal experience and their ability to do the right thing and make proper choices, they'll end up sounding more like Arminians. I see. Okay. So even if they don't know what to call themselves, when you talk yeah. to them, they would they would probably uh, they would probably express a belief that that humans are are fallen. I, I think I, th- I think a charitable listening could come to that conclusion. <laughs> okay, I'll try to be charitable in my listening then. Well, so there's one real big issue, one more that that I have with the Churches of Christ I'm familiar with, and and maybe this is uh, this may be an issue where you and I disagree somewhat as well. We'll find out. Um, and it's the position on baptism. So first, not the mainstream, but these extreme sectarian churches of Christ. Summarize for us what they believe about baptism. They believe that baptism is one of five steps that a person must fulfill to meet the conditions to receive salvation. After which, having received it. For the moment, uh, at least, uh, they are, they, 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 God has only been good to them and shown His grace. They don't deserve anything. Their salvation, meanwhile, continues to be dependent on their doing and believing the right thing till the day they die. And then they may die either in or out of grace. Uh, if they die in grace, uh, praise God, they were lucky. And uh, if they die out of grace, uh, they deserved it, and probably most people will end up in that shape. So, so, in, in one of your grace mails, you explain that what these churches of Christ believe is not really baptismal regeneration, since they don't believe that baptism accomplishes anything apart from faith. And I won't argue with you about that, but I don't really think that that's the problem that evangelicals like myself have with them. Rather, their position seems to be that it is impossible to be saved unless and until one is baptized. In fact, this friend of mine I mentioned earlier, um, he and I were once discussing, and he told me that if a person who becomes a believer acknowledges his sin, repents, trusts in the Lord uh, as a propitiation for his sins, if such a new believer were to be hit by a bus and die on the way to the church to be baptized, he wouldn't be saved. Is this generally true of these sectarian churches? I would say the hard-line uh, legalistic types believe that. That's, that's total nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's, it's anti-biblical. It's nuts. Anti-gospel. It's uh, legalistic. It's, it's bad in every way. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So we're, we're we're not God. We can't make such decisions. Uh, God looks at the heart, and I would say the person on their way to being baptized, God knows whether that person's a true believer or not. Uh, Church of Christ have, for reasons I can go into some other time if you want to, kind of focused on Acts two thirty eight as their main scripture on baptism, but. Uh, and that says, by the way, for those who are not so familiar with it, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they point out uh, that Peter does say to that particular audience to repent and be baptized, and they receive remission of sins. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the same apostle speaking to a different audience in Acts 10 says that through Jesus, all the prophets are to about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that whoever believes in him has remission of sins. So the scriptures are not uh, uniform in giving this as a formula, and the person who trusts in Christ is saved by Christ. Baptism is something that is commanded. It's a, it's a mark of the, of the Christian who is fulfilled in doing what Jesus commands in the Great Commission. Uh, I think I think Church of Christ mainstream, in their better form, uh, as I see it, are much like uh, evangelical Anglicans, people like John Stott, uh, for example, or N.T. Wright, or whatever on this point, that, uh, that uh, J.I. Packer, they would, they would say that baptism is, in fact, uh, may be spoken of at times as a as as time or the external symbol or whatever of, of receiving salvation. But then, of course, it happens uh, on the basis of what God sees in the heart. And I, I like to personally go another step further and say that 
I do not fully agree with either Church of Christ people or evangelical people in general, either one on this point. If one asks the question, when is a person saved or set right with God, the typical evangelical will say when they pray the sinner's prayer or when they trust in Christ. The typical Church of Christ person will say when they're baptized. I would say you're both, you're both right in what you want people to do. You're both wrong in thinking that's when the main event happened. The main event happened when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. As our representative, we died and rose. We were set right with God. And the gospel is the good news of our salvation, which tells us you've been reconciled, accept your reconciliation, begin to live as a new creation in Christ. Yeah, I, I actually, just about everything that you just said, I, I, I would concur with. But, but just so my listeners are very clear, because this might be surprising to them that there are churches of Christ who would hold this position, you are saying it's possible, even if it's not necessarily normative, I don't even know if you would say that that's the case, but it is possible to be a saved, truly born-again Christian and yet not, and not yet have been baptized, if that's, is that right? Yes. Oh, well, great. Well, so one more question about baptism that I have, though. It seems to me um, that these sectarian churches of Christ, at least, have what I think is an unhealthy focus on studying and preaching about baptism to the exclusion of virtually everything else. I mean, just as one one very simple example, this friend of mine that I've mentioned a couple times, when he and I first started talking, um, because eschatology is a particular passion of mine, before I was willing to discuss baptism, I wanted to make sure that he has uh, that he agrees with the church's teaching on the resurrection of the dead in the future. And when I pressed him on that, he was he he was totally unaware of that teaching, and he was certain that the Christian hope is in heaven rather than in the resurrection. And and so it seems to me that they they have this really myopic um, tunnel vision on baptism, so much so that they study very little else. Do you think that that's true? That's often true of many folks. Yes. And uh, and, and, and by the way, his his uh, mistaken uh, emphasis on going to heaven instead of the resurrection of the dead in the new heavens and new earth and the new body, the resurrection is is not limited to people in his group. <laughs> That's typical among Protestants, as you know, across the board, and that's part of what I, what I and I think you as well are trying to help correct. Yes, that's if true. May, if I may, I'd like to say one other thing about his comment about baptism, however, and, and, and something in the history, because this is fascinating. Most people don't know it, even in or out of the Churches of Christ, and it, it probably makes a difference in the way they view the whole subject uh, as it's discussed. The, the reason that uh, the Churches of Christ have made Acts 2.38 their primary passage on baptism, and not only made it their primary passage on baptism, but sometimes made that their primary subject in preaching, uh, in, in the worst form has become this, this thing we've been talking about, of thinking that salvation depends on us meeting this checklist of requirements, and baptism is the last one before you get into the group. Uh, that, that's the wrong way of looking at it. The, the way it really came about is as follows, and it has roots in Calvinism. In, in, in the days of Alexander Campbell, the Calvinists in America were very, very radical and, and, and severe, even by modern standards, and would be considered that by Calvinists, I think. And one of the things they did in those days was, uh, in, their, in their evangelistic meetings, they furnished them from a pew that they called the mourner's bench, or the anxious seat, and, uh, and, and they, they would... They would preach that a person is either predestined to salvation or not, and the way you come, the way you have assurance of salvation is to come down to this mourner's bench and pray through, and you come down there and agonize about your sins and seek the Lord and confess and so on until you receive a sense of peace and assurance and go home. Well, this was a dreadful device that uh, left many people in misery who probably really were saved. And, uh, and it was not at all a biblical way of finding assurance. Sure. Alexander Campbell responded to that, and this was a praxis-driven doctrine. He responded to that by saying, that's not the way we have assurance. That's not what God intended for us to go through. That's an agony you put on people that's not proper. And here, in fact, is what I've seen in reading the New Testament, that in the book of Acts, in the very first gospel presentation, and this would be taken by him to be typical of what one might expect thereafter. Uh, Peter concludes his response to their inquiries by saying, uh, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he said, This is God's means of assurance 
And if you will do what he said there, if you repent and you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you have remission of sins, and you may be assured of that. God gives you his spirit. You don't have to sit down here and mourn and wail and carry on for days until you have some sense of peace. So he saw he saw that as God's merciful and kind. It's kind of like somebody said the ark that Noah built is pitched inside and outside with pitch on the outside for his safety, on the inside for his assurance. And this was a God-given thing that involved the assurance. So, so you're you're kind of saying that at least in part, this emphasis on baptism and this this focus on it is was a reaction against what was definitely an unbiblical um, practice uh, that was prescribed for having assurance. That's 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 the way that particular verse came to be so prominent. I see. Uh, it, it's also true that before that and alongside that, Campbell himself had an emphasis on baptism different from that. He it, it experienced. So after they left the Presbyterian Church, was first to join the Baptist Association in America, but they came to view that baptism was more important than the Baptist Association, and eventually left, left, left their umbrella as well. So there was always this emphasis on it. It's really kind of an inconsistent emphasis. If you read in Campbell's own writings in the Millennial Harbinger and the Christian Baptist, which were two papers he published for a period of time, uh, you'll find some places where he talks about baptism almost as though it's uh, what we're calling a sectarian or legalistic sort of thing. And you find other places where he talks about it in a very different sort of way. And I think he's working his way through and all of that. Uh, bottom line, well, you got a bottom line coming later. I'll save it for that. Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, so that was those were all the issues that I was hoping you could clarify for me. Are there any other differences you want to highlight between the mainstream and the sectarian churches uh, before we move on? I think that, uh, to my mind, the two words that have most distressed, that, that, that point to the things that most distress me about, about the ones that I think have gone astray or, or become too radical and non-biblical, uh, basically is that they're not Christ-centered, they're, they're not focused on the gospel, they're focused on other things, and that would be true whether they're Baptist or Church of Christ or Methodist or whoever, if they did that, uh, but, but the, but the, but the the areas in which they do that, I think, are summed up by those two words we've been talking about. It's legalistic, which means they trust in their own performance instead of what Jesus did as our representative. And sectarian, which means they don't associate with others as Christian brothers and sisters who are different from themselves. Uh, okay, and, and I, I didn't send you this, this question in advance, but so I'm sorry to spring it on you, but given everything we've talked about, I'm wondering if there's any way you could recommend to my listeners, um, if they stumble upon a, a, a church that calls itself a Church of Christ, is there any very simple, brief way maybe that you could help them to be able to quickly identify which whether this is a mainstream or a sectarian uh, version of the Churches of Christ? Well, I'll tell you uh, some, of, some of the ways I've done that myself. Okay. Uh, when we moved to Houston 29 years ago and started visiting different churches across in the area where we live, we went to one church and I walked in the door and immediately the first thing I saw was a track rack. You know what that is? Mm-hmm. A rack with pamphlets in it, little tracks or pamphlets. Oh, yeah, okay. Or a table spread with tracks or pamphlets on different subjects. And then when I see a church that has that kind of handout material, I always look it over and see what they're what they're pushing or handing out or emphasizing or teaching or distributing. And in this particular instance, the whole the whole table was filled with tracts with such titles as uh, "Why I Am Not a Baptist" or whatever fill in the blanks. Uh, why only those in the Church of Christ can be saved? Uh, what's wrong with this bit of music? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with those people over there? And, and so that's a giveaway in my mind. If, 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 if the message that they're giving out is primarily what's wrong with everybody else and why we're right and nobody else is, then you'll know, run as fast as you can. <laughs> if, on, if, on the other hand, you find the handout material and, it, and the themes are such things as, as Jesus, as healer, Jesus giving peace, Jesus giving deliverance, the gospel, the good news, and it's Christ-centered, that's a pretty good sign. Another thing that I've noticed at times is it's a pretty good giveaway. If uh, if, the, if the preaching, if you go several times and hear different sermons uh, and conversations, if those 
if there's certain names, and I can't even give you a list, it would probably not even be appropriate, but uh, there's certain names of certain people, uh, which would include mine in the list, uh, which if their name were mentioned in, in the presence of these folks, you immediately get frowns and head shaking no and, uh, and dire, uh, dire uh, implications of uh, animation and all of that, uh, telling how terrible these people are. So, you know, there's, there's, there's truth to the old saying that if somebody's an enemy of that person, they must be a friend of mine. <laughs> but besides... So, so, but besides first, first, what do they say about Jesus? Is it Jesus what they talk about or something else? Secondly, uh, do they have a, do they spend their time telling what's wrong with others or telling what, what good news they have? And third, uh, how they react to those who I consider gospel agents within our movement. Uh, who, who, besides your own name, I think you mentioned yours, are there any others that you would recommend they ask about? Certain times, uh, certain times and places, a man named Rubel Shelley is, uh, is noted in this regard. Another, another name that, uh, would either probably be appreciated or greatly not appreciated is well, very well known, far beyond any of the names that I've named so far, including mine, would be Max Lucado. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so you're saying that these, these sectarian churches of Christ would, would frown if they hear Rubel Shelley or Max Lucado or even your name. They would probably kind of react a little negatively, and that might be one of these giveaways. Yeah, the crown, crown will be a mild reaction. <laughs> okay. Well, I like to end my interviews by giving my guests an opportunity to give a parting message, what I think you called a few moments ago, the bottom line. We've talked an awful lot, and I'm sure that we both hope that our listeners take it all seriously and, and go back, maybe listen to it again, take notes, all of that. But still, if they were to walk away with just uh, what the bottom line of everything that what you said, what, what would you like me and my listeners to take away from our discussion? I would say, what I said in the beginning and several times throughout, be careful about going around labeling people as groups and all that. Everybody is an individual. It has to be seen that way. Secondly, remember that our our duty toward other people is not to judge them, but to assist them in the ways of Christ. It's by example, first of all, and by teaching, secondly. And third, let's be sure ourselves that our emphasis and efforts are spent and uh, expended in uh, exalting Jesus Christ as Savior and following Him as Lord and uh, and doing good to all people in His name. Good, great. Uh, What books and resources could you recommend for listeners who want to do further research, either into the Restoration Movement as a whole or the Churches of Christ specifically, regardless of which Churches of Christ we're talking about? Are there any resources you can recommend? Yes, uh, a small free thing I would mention is this little book that that you refer to on my website. It doesn't cost anything. If they go to edwardfudds.com and look for the booklets, they'll find one called The Restoration Movement Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I think that sums up what I consider important on this whole subject. In terms of the Restoration Movement itself, if they just like a, a, a nice overview and want to read a history book, a very excellent book is by Dr. Richard Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, called Reviving the Ancient Faith. Uh, the Story of Churches of Christ in America, that's published by Hoodmans. Uh, there's another very fine book called The Stone Campbell Movement by Leroy Garrett. And this was focused on individuals. It's kind of a narrative type of history on the, on the uh, more narrow, narrow view of folks. Uh, uh, there's a book by a great uh, church historian named David E. Harrell, H-A-R-R-E-L-L, of the churches across the 20th century, and he, he's speaking from the context of the more narrow viewpoint, but he's a good church historian. Okay, and, and you mentioned it very briefly there, but can, can you give our listeners one more time the address to your website and how they could get in contact with you? Yes, uh, that website is edwardfudge.com. Fudge is in Fudge Candy. <laughs> and then, uh, my, my email address is edward at edwardfudge.com. You've referred to Grace Mail. That's a little piece I send out two or three times a week uh, to a few thousand people around the world, and, uh, and that's free of charge. If anyone would like to subscribe to that, they can write to me, Edward at edwardfudge.com, and just say, send me Grace Mail or just put me on your mailing list or whatever. And I'm glad to do that. And then while they're at my website, I hope they'll look at the books 
have six books presently in print, and uh, and that many more at least available now out of print generally. But uh, all of that's on the website as well. Great. Well, I'm looking well, forward. I'm sorry. Uh, that's enough. I started to say something else, but I'll save it for our next conversation. Okay, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to talking in a couple of weeks about one of those books that you make available for purchase on your website. Um, and until then, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. I know it's been a long two hours, but I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate being with you. But make yourself a note, if you would, for the next time when we're on that other subject. Uh, ask about the movie that's being made. Oh, I already planned on it. I, in fact, I was thinking about asking it at the beginning of this one, but I figured its context would be better in the next episode. You're, you're right about that. Thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure to visit with you. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. There you have it. That was the interview with Edward Fudge on the Restoration Movement in the Churches of Christ. And I'll confess that prior to talking to him, uh, I didn't know that there was, you know, if not perhaps a majority of the Churches of Christ that seem like they very well may be biblical, legitimate, you know, churches to go to, ones that aren't uh, at all like the legalistic, sectarian ones that I'm familiar with. So I find that really encouraging. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to come back and talk about the fire that consumes and annihilationism. Um, and uh, I'll talk more about that in the monologue to that episode, because uh, to be honest with you now, I'm um, uh, my experience with it is somewhat similar to my experience with physicalism. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk more about that then. Um, after that, I don't have any interviews lined up, so I guess I should probably get some going. Um, otherwise, I'll do some episodes by myself. It's been quite a while since I've done any of those, and for the few of you who like when I teach on my own, um, <laughs> perhaps you'll be looking forward to that. So whatever next episode is after that, I hope you'll stay tuned for the Edward Fudge interview. Until then...